Is all hope lost? Well, the White House future of the Trump whisperer with the last name Hicks certainly is, perhaps by choice, what seemingly bright and talented 29-year-old with an entire future outside of the West Wing's cavalcade of cronies wouldn't spot the exit route, but also potentially due to the president's own legal indiscretions implicating her in the Russia investigation. What about hope for the continuation of the stock market boom? As it turns out, Trump is keen to undo all of the gains made with tax reform by imposing massive tariffs on steel and aluminum imports, waging a full-on trade war with the rest of the world. And the gun control debate? It's an absolute shit show. I'm Tiana Lowe. I'm Avery Hogarth, and as we see it, hope is grim. So we're having grimlets. This is the political pregame. Sit down and have a drink with us. As the future of beer, NAFTA, and gun control hangs in the balance, you'll need it. Anyways, honestly, if we lose beer, that's just the end for me. Like, show's over, I'm canceled, podcast canceled. I don't know. That's just the most devastating issue of the week for me. Trump doesn't even care. He doesn't drink. This this is not a big loss for him, apparently. He, he doesn't drink, yet he consumes copious amounts of fast food per week. Uh, whatever. Anyways, guys, welcome back to the political pregame. Uh, on this week's episode, we'll be talking about Hope Hicks, the newfound war on trade, as well as uh, Trump's gun whiplash. Um, also, as always, we'd like to start off with just saying we are on iTunes and SoundCloud. So if you prefer one of those streaming platforms over the other, feel free to toss us the subscription or follow there. And as always, you can contact Tiana and I on social media at Tiana the First and at Avery Hogarth and on our website at www.thepoliticalpregame.com. So let's get right into it. Is all hope lost? Certainly one hope is. So this is... Hope Hicks has a very quiet public profile. This is someone who is always... Who has always been defined by her image simply because she does not give on-the-record interviews. Whether or not that's sexism, ageism... Or I guess not ageism, but a bias against the fact that she's so young. I don't know what it is. But everyone who works with her, specifically like Axios, White House correspondent Jonathan Swan, uh, the legendary Maggie Haberman at the New York Times, they all really like working with her. She's someone who clearly understood President Trump really well from the Trump Organization and on. So with Hope Hicks departing the White House, that means that the only people with the president right now who have been with him since the Trump Organization, at least at the highest levels, all have the last name Trump or Kushner. Isn't it insane to think that Hope was the longest Trump aide other than ones with family ties? And she's 29. She herself was not with him for too long if you look at previous aides for other presidents. It's just pretty crazy the kind of... The turnaround is chaotic for, for sure. Yeah. That being said, um, I think it's important to note that Hope Hicks is someone who clearly was somewhat of a source of stability, who was implicated in two White House scandals, and we don't know how much she knew or how much she was an agent in terms of being involved with them. So I I see a lot of people, specifically in the liberal media, um, saying that Hope Hicks has been handled with kid gloves because she seems young and that no one's being fair about blaming her for specifically the Rob Porter situation, uh, in which she was dating Rob Porter, who was uh, serving director directly under uh, Chief of Staff John Kelly. And as we've previously discussed, uh, Porter was out after there were there's photographic evidence and a lot of corroborated evidence showing that Rob Porter 
incredibly committed domestic violence against two of his ex-wives. And um, Hope Hicks's role in that was, it was, it was much, it was hotly debated because she was dating Rob Porter at the time and was rumored, or purportedly uh, wrote the, wrote the statement um, defending Porter. And so that's scandal number one that she was involved with. And scandal number two, uh, the fact that she was implicated into the Russia investigation. But here we have Politico now reporting that Trump implicated her unwittingly by discussing the Russia investigation with Hope Hicks. So I, I, I Big according, no, no. according to Politico's uh, Darren Samuelson and Eliana Johnson, Donald Trump's lawyers urged him not to discuss the details of the Russia investigation with people not directly implicated in it. And he did so with Hope Hicks because Hope Hicks was sort of the 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 cliche is that Hope Hicks was like a second daughter to him, but clearly she did have a lot of capability in terms of balancing his relationship with the press as evidenced by people by by the media's uh affection for her. And and I, I bring up these two span these two scandals in particular to show that compared to other White House personnel, it looks like it was not that much that that drove her out. The rumor is that that she had been planning this departure for a while. It wasn't instigated immediately by her um, by her testimony to the House Intelligence Committee. It wasn't directly impacted by the Rob Porter situation. But I, I do think that this is this strange microcosm of how someone who came from a PR firm, her entire family was in PR, so she came from a PR firm, began to work for Ivanka's brand, like the Ivanka Trump company or Ivanka Trump the whole fashion line, and then. And then was onboarded into the Trump organization and then sort of just found herself in the middle of this political campaign. And I don't say that to take away agency. Obviously, she knew what she was doing. She heard, you know, everything that Trump was saying about Mexican rapists and uh, women. But I, I do think that it's worth noting. And Laura McGann has an excellent piece of Vox asking, why were the Obama bros, you know, uh, John Favreau... Uh, everyone who was sort of heralded as these wonderkins, given the sense that, oh, these young, brilliant scholars and ingenues, whereas Hope Hicks was always defined as she modeled when she was a child and she's a neophyte. Yeah, Donald Trump's also a neophyte and he's also the president of the United States. Simple so. answer to that question, she's a woman. And notoriously, that is the first characteristic that people go in the media to, to portray it. And so... What I will say, though, is beyond, obviously, the comments and news stories about Hope's looks and her modeling career history and whatever it may be, I guess the saving grace is that she was heralded as still a very capable and intelligent woman. Um, yes. Except it was coupled with those statements, which are probably completely unnecessary to her job description and what she actually does yeah. and, and did in the White House and beyond for the Trump campaign yeah. and administration. And so, yes, that's unfortunate, but for me, I take away the positive aspect in that the looks weren't all she had and, and weren't all that was written about. That defined her, And yeah. that defined her in the media. Uh, however, obviously, that's unfortunate. Yeah. And I think it's sort of interesting how Trump is someone who, I mean, I think that one of the major reasons why the Never Trump faction did show at the polls, um, I, I think a lot of it has to do specifically with his rhetoric about women. Um, yet 
his his closest infrastructure, the people who seem to have the capability to influence his choices the most. You have Ivanka, who's who's literally his daughter. So that makes sense, I guess. But then you also have Kellyanne Conway, who had so much authority throughout the campaign and is one of his main surrogates on TV. You had Hope Hicks, and apparently Trump's Trump's deeply upset. Not in a, it doesn't sound like he's taking it out on her, but he's sort of unnerved by losing her in the White House. You have Nikki Haley in the UN. And Avery, I have a question for you. Because I, I think that I share sentiment with a lot of people on the right that that conservative women have it one of the worst if we're looking at sexism, specifically as intersex with like other like ideologies and whatnot. Do you think that conservative women have it worse than liberal women? I, w- I would actually contend that yes, uh, but in varying degrees and in different contexts. Um, by that, I mean liberal women are stereotyped to be almost these notoriously like, genderqueer people or sexuality queer people and are gender perceived. Queer. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, are, no, no. But no, are perceived no. to yeah. be completely just left wing extremists. Yeah. yeah. Whereas on the right, you see conservative women being portrayed just for their looks and nothing more. Whereas, obviously, there are conservative women on the right who are extremely intelligent, yourself included, who are very capable. Yet, for a lot of people and for a lot of these intelligent conservative women on the right, they're mainly seen as people who are just outspoken, are there and are popular because of their looks and not popular because of their intellect. And I think intellect gets brushed to the bottom there whereas on the left you see them as probably being portrayed as more radical than they are but the intellect isn't necessarily taken away from those women on the left where I think it is for the conservative women on the right yeah and I think I just wonder it's sort of I think everyone is kind of to blame I think for instance you have someone like Ann Coulter and say what you will about Ann Coulter about what she believes in and what she writes but she is someone who has been a New York Times bestseller since the uh, 90s, you know? She's always been her own employer. It's not as though she was ever housed at some legacy media publication or had her own, like, long-running show or something. She's someone who's made her money off of her own syndicated column and her own books. And I remember broadly, like, the Vice Feminist offshoot website, they did a really interesting piece a couple years back, and it was just called Ann Coulter's a Human Being. And it's something that... I don't know if Broadly would still publish that today, because I think today you'd be accused of handing a softball like feature on someone that does not align with left-wing ideologies. But but it's so easy to forget that that people who you disagree with are women too, or are people too, or human beings as well. And um, with conservative women, it I think it it's it's a microcosm of this greater problem that I have with identity politics. When when you're told, oh, we are representing your gender well, you aren't you aren't advocating for women's rights well, and that's and that's always been, and and we don't need to relitigate the entire women's march because I know there's so much to talk about today. But shout out to our episode on that. Go check it out (laughs) if you want to hear our actual thoughts. But um, but I do think it's important to remember that empowerment for all women must include all women, and. That's why I am deeply appreciative of someone like Laura McGann, who writes for Vox, which is an openly liberal website, advocating for the fact that Hope Hicks 
should, yes, yes, she should receive blame for the fact that she was a member of, like, this White House, and I do think that, that perhaps some on left and right-wing media have treated her with kid gloves, but also that, that the mainstream media has been guilty of characterizing her by the fact that she modeled when she was 16, rather than the fact that reporters like working with her, and clearly she's a competent human being in that White House, which is, you know, a valuable asset in any case. Well, what's interesting, this may be a very controversial statement for me to make, but... It's almost as if for women in politics, it may be more advantageous if you are intrinsically just, you know, average looking or not even or below average looking in terms of what pop culture deems average and what and what's not, uh, because at least then your looks don't come into question and you're actually judged on the basis of your intellect rather than the basis of your intrinsic looks that you can't change. Yeah. And so that's what's unfortunate because every column or every piece you would read on Hope Hicks throughout her career in the White House, yes, it talked about, you know, the ethos of the article at its core and the through line would always be about what she's doing and and what specific event had occurred that incited the article to be written in the first place. But it somehow always had to revert back to and, and was overshadowed with just comments about, oh, she was a model and she looks pretty. I just, there's no place for that. No, and I mean, I don't know. What a hackneyed form of writing, honestly. I think it's, it, obviously, with um, the palace intrigue of this White House is a story far too often. And I understand that it's because everyone is fair game that she gets written about as such. But but that really is indicative of this, of, of, of I think, a greater problem with how do we write about characters, especially as journalists, you know, because she wasn't giving press conferences or anything, obviously. She has such a demure public profile. How is it possible to discuss her in a way that that is not immediately, oh, God, I sense a liberal objectifying. I don't know. It, it, it's, just, it's just one of the many grievances Is it I've liberal, had. though, or is it just respecting women? I'm, hop- I'm hoping it's just respecting women. Because um, that shouldn't be a partisan you know, stance. Yeah, in in any case, I I think this is a very obvious sign that the mooch needs to come back. Well, if Hope is out, who else is in Trump? Like, this is what's most troublesome. We're running out of comms directors. Well, this is what, yes, but also this is what, he can't go back right away because the mooch is coming to USC campus next week and we really need to meet him and somehow coerce him to get on our show. But after that, I'm okay with him going back. But what's more troublesome to me, is now with the exception of Trump's own kin, there isn't anyone in the White House who has this reported special, you know, ear to the president or has the president's ear. And so in that instance, I mean, Hope did admit to, you know, saying white lies to the media or even saying white lies to the president in order to further the agenda of the overall administration and, and get some cohesiveness and some efficiency going. And if you don't have her, who is going to who is going to fill that role? And there isn't necessarily anyone to do it. No, because and so yeah. that's difficult because she was almost the mitigating factor for a lot of crises that could have occurred in the White House that we don't know about because they didn't as a result of her. Yeah, and I mean now NBC is reporting that HR McMaster is rumored to follow Jared Kushner. Oh my God! I mean, it looks like he's in deep doo doo. So, I mean, who's left around Trump? I mean, you have Dina Powell left, you know? Um, 
apparently Gary Cohn is now considering leaving thanks to this whole trade debacle. So Trump's saying he feels, uh, the reports are that he feels isolated, but I don't think that embracing Dianne Feinstein and waging a trade war against China and the entire EU is necessarily the solution. But I do believe that these are directly related. So I think it's a classic rally around the flag effect. He has in the past couple weeks had a couple significant actors from his administration either be ousted or leave on their own accord or resign. And I think this is a way to distract from that by producing kind of a foreign international relations crisis or at least debate. (laughs) Well, okay. So this is the one thing I don't think he's, I don't think this is an intentional thing. If you look back at Trump's entire political record, he was at, Trump has been Democrat. He has been Republican. He has been pro-raise taxes, pro-decrease taxes. He has occupied every position under the sun when it comes to war, when it comes to social policies. And in some cases, that has been extremely good. I like the fact that Trump has made, um, or that Trump has represented a shift in the Republican Party's embrace of the LGBT community, you know? But the one thing that Trump has always been consistent in, and something that I, as a devout uh, classical liberal and capitalist conservative, strongly oppose, is his obsession with economic protectionism. Okay, so... Which doesn't always work. All right, gang, so here's where we're standing. Trump uh, wants to impose a 10% tariff on aluminum imports, I believe it's a 25% tariff on steel imports, and the White House calls it fair, free, and reciprocal trade. So these are all, um, fair, free, and reciprocal are pretty much directly contradictory. So there is free speech. (laughs) There is free trade. The Chinese government is arguably inundating international markets with solar panels, with steel, And that's not fair, but because economics are not politics, it still means that thanks to comparative advantages, everyone can win. This is something that uh, I think everyone has been outraged. I I think this is something that across the aisle, there's a lot of... uh, There's there's, there's a degree of consensus, I think, under uh, the center left and the center right. the important so there are two main questions I have about why about Trump doing this. One, and the first one that I want us to address is timing, but uh, the second one, to what end? So I mentioned timing because tax reform, and I'm gonna ask you about this specifically, Avery. But tax reform, I think, has proven to be a popular success in the sense that it has benefited the paychecks of ninety percent of all Americans. And clearly, it's gone further than the baseline hope that, oh, you have more of your paycheck back in your, in, your, um, in your bank account, but also the fact that so many companies have issued bonuses. Now, we're asking to start a trade war at the cost of the American consumer. Will that not just wipe out all of the gains made in tax reform. And, 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 and can you at least concede that there is a benefit to tax reform? Oh, of course. I mean, I think regardless of partisanship, anyone should always be for tax reform and for lower taxes when it works. Uh, 
I can't deny the benefits of tax reform in terms of, as you said, with the statistic of benefiting the pockets of 90% of Americans. However, the process of which is what I'm skeptical on in terms of adding to the deficit, all the other factors that go into that. But I can't deny that it is great to see not only people having just more retention of their salaries to begin with, but to see that companies have been incentivized to give some kickbacks to their employees as well. That's great. I have my own skepticisms and critiques on the process of how it was done, but the product, sure, that's great. For the average American who's not affected by the deficit or whatever it may be, that's amazing. An issue that I have with this trade war and these tariffs on steel and aluminum and what I was kind of asking you about before this, we started recording, Tiana, as, you know, Tiana, obviously, you know more about this to- like topic and the efficiency of economics than I do being an e- economics major. But what I worry about is that almost kind of the learning curve of the American economy and the companies between these tariffs being imposed. So therefore, because Trump's ideology is, OK, well, we want to promote American business. We want to make it so that there's more demand for American products, therefore, the industry domestically has to become larger, companies have to employ more people, yada, yada, yada. However, at what cost is the learning curve between now imposing these tariffs and then there being a therefore increased demand for the domestic American product, which is cheaper than the foreign product now, um, and kind of this learning curve between not having enough supply to meet the demand, therefore prices becoming larger. You've seen Coors and Bush be very against this policy as a result of that because it will make the production of their beer cans more. And so does this now decentivize these companies from being able to give these kickbacks to the employees, these great bonuses that we saw as a result of tax reform because now these companies are having to employ way more employees and therefore diluting the amount of money or budgeted funds that they had to give bonuses. Now they have to devote those to more salaries for more employees. And does this in turn cost uh, increase of aluminum and steel really hurt a lot of businesses by making them pay more money? Those yeah. are two major issues. Yeah. So this is a, I, 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 I did Colin Moriarty show earlier this week, and that will be dropping um, probably... Next week, or if, if you're listening to this, I'll be dropping in a few days. It's Colin's last stand, and and I was so he 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 was saying so he was he was a Republican who who unregistered from the or deregistered from the party after Trump won the primary, and he was saying the only thing that he thinks that Trump brought to the table that other people didn't have was truth protectionism, and he asked me to convince him why why he was wrong. And I, I definitely misrepresented these statistics now that I'm looking at them on my computer because I did not have any of these stats in front of me. But um, let's let, let's look at let's look at solar solar panels, and because that, that's something that Trump had previously announced that he was going to tariff, and are less of a big deal because less solar panels are less fundamental to the American economy than obviously aluminum, which packages most of our food, steel, which is in most of our buildings, most you know. So solar panels. Um, if you look at the breakdown of the American economy over the last 75 years, we used to be a manufacturing economy. When Trump thinks of America, I think Trump definitely thinks of, like, we make cars, we make goods. 
And when he talks about when he talks about trade protectionism, he will often talk about bringing back jobs. The fact is that 70% of jobs that are lost in manufacturing are lost due to technology, not due to trade. So, yeah, you can America first your way towards tariffing the bejesus out of everything, but that won't bring back the 70% of jobs that are lost to automation. So Trump wants to tariff now solar panel imports, but that's, so he wants to do this because there are 38,000 jobs in manufacturing solar panels. So yeah, sure, that's a benefit to those 38,000 manufacturers, but uh, there are 260,000 people employed in the solar industry as a total, and the overwhelming majority of those people are involved in the installation because the United States has become a service economy. We, are, we don't produce things as efficiently as other countries can. And there's a reason why when you check most of your shirts, textiles made in Malaysia, made in China, and it's because that those countries have a comparative advantage in manufacturing, whereas we have an advantage in intellectual property, in service, and so that's obviously going to affect what benefits us. So Trump can tariff solar panels, and that will benefit that small industry, like those, because I think right now the solar panel industry in America is close to around an oligopoly. So it'll benefit those few countries that manufacture solar panels, but at the cost of making them more expensive and meaning that less Americans are A, going to buy them, and B, that those hundreds of thousands of people who work on installing them are going to lose their jobs. Uh, The BLS projects that solar panel jobs are going to double in the next 10 years for installations that's one of the fastest growing occupations in the country and i think that now you're going to see this with steel steel is not the i mean the department of defense which is in charge which obviously is directly related to our national security the department of defense says that they only need what three percent of the steel that we currently have or 3% of American steel production in order to, bare minimum, in terms of maintaining our national security. In order to invoke these tariffs, Trump is Trump is um, is bolstering these tariffs on Section 233 using Wilbur Rossett, the Secretary of Commerce, his recommendation that we tariff steel and aluminum to protect our national security. But the Department of Defense already said that we don't need to do so. Uh, Jim Mattis is apparently against this, and uh, I, I I just don't understand what this is. I mean, okay, I, I know that I probably don't sound very coherent in terms of like how I'm stringing together these thoughts, except for the fact that it's just so infuriating that this is the war that Trump is willing to wage right after we have these historic tax cuts, something that I think that if you take, if you look at the public opinion polling of it, so it was, the tax cuts were viewed so unfavorably before they were passed, and now are viewed so favorably because it shows how capitalism and laissez-faire economics works. And now he just wants to go undo that all by tariffing steel and aluminum and plus also solar panels and washing machines. To what end? To what end? And that's my question then. To what end? To just piss off everyone? Well, this has been the pro- my problem with 
Trump's economic plan all along in that it seems extremely reactionary rather than proactive. And I say that because to reference what you kind of said earlier is that Trump is trying to almost revert back to industrial America. But okay, we're not there. And also that's not where the future is. And so if you want to go back to coal mining, well, coal is just not where the future is at. So you can expand all of these coal, all of this coal mining production just for the next administration to come in in three years or, or even more than that if Trump has two terms and change all of those policies, which will have been for nothing, towards renewable, energy-efficient yeah. sources, which is where the entire world is moving. And so why are we looking to put America back to this industrial era that it was built upon in which we are an automaking country and and we have industry and we make steel and like all of these hardworking, you know, steel towns like Pittsburgh mm-hmm. or whatever it may be, rather than saying, okay, maybe this is a time, these were times of the past. What can we do to look towards the future to give us both a competitive and comparative advantage to every other country and every other emerging economy in the world that is trying to take down the states as number one? And he's not looking to do that, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me intellectually. Wouldn't you rather be ahead of the curve than with the curve or even in some instances with Trump behind the curve? Why not as America, we focus on, okay, so jobs are being lost to automation why don't we become the best country at developing a skilled workforce that is able to handle these automotive robots or whatever it may be and get people that are that have, you know, a two-year college degree or a two-year community college degree rather in computer coding or whatever it may be or in the yeah. service of these automated I don't know, of these automated devices and technology. Yeah. That is where I see great economic and job growth advantages and and promise and i think that's where a lot of any economist or any person who looks at jobs and looks at how to create them who is up to date on current trends and where the world is headed thinks and we're just in this old era mindset which is extremely frustrating because after trump's term in office is over we will have lost those four years or those eight years where as america we could have been getting ahead Well, so one of the things that, okay, so let's take a step back and remember what really resonated about Trump specifically. Let's ignore, like, the alt-right, like, this very small faction of people who who believe that everything he said was, like, a racist dog whistle. Let's, good faith, view why Trump was different from the rest of this insanely talented pack of people running in the Republican primary. So when a lot of people looked at the other Republican politicians, they saw a blend of elitism, rhinoism, we've heard it all before, more of the same. The people who were in the game for Trump from the beginning, what were a couple of things they said? They said, he says it like it is. But also, remember Trump used to say, I am your voice, you know? Like, you're, like, we're listening to you again. And, and he, and the promise of jobs. And he echoed, he echoed those sentiments a lot at the State of the Union, and he did so in a way that really worked. But, if you really want to represent middle America, people who do not think that they need to drown themselves in hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt in Ivy League University in order to get a lesbian dance theory degree, because I totally believe that, that that is a waste of money and that you're much better off trying to be a rational economic actor. Is I agree that a with major? That. 
you know, something like that. So, okay, so, so I, the, the, reason, the reason why I bring up this hyperbole is because I think that there is something very resonant about the fact that Trump wants to represent people who are blue-collar workers. And blue, the blue-collar working class, it doesn't have to stagnate into literal coal mining, it can be something else. Ironically enough, you know, like, the whole reason why nuclear power was ever really advanced at a government level was because Margaret Thatcher wanted to stick it to the coal mining unions. So these things change. Margaret Thatcher, one of the most conservative politicians of the modern era, was actively trying to kill the coal industry. So, and I'm, and I'm not saying kill the coal industry. Obviously, the people who are working those jobs, they should be respected. But we should also be, if Trump really wants to help out the working class, give them the tools to to advance with technology and to be purveyors of of an emerging workforce. For instance, Trump, if he really wants to combat elitism, bring computer science classes into into public schools. Start teaching kids how to code at a young age. Um, I think that Marco Rubio's uh, proposed legislation that I think Trump has taken on. Uh, to increase vocational training is amazing. I think this Definitely. myth this myth that we are promulgating that if you do not have a college degree, you will not succeed in the modern work for- workforce is not only misguided and economically wrong, it is also evil. I think that it devalues existing degrees and it forces people into decades of hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt. But I don't know why Trump is clinging on so hopelessly to this vision of America where the blue-collar working class is doing the exact same stuff as they were doing 75 years ago. Well, and it's extremely frustrating because you and I see it, and so many other politicians do. Rubio sees it. We see this potential for America and to develop this extreme advantage. And then you see that just completely slipping through the fingers of the Trump administration. And I don't know why he's holding on to this old vision. And I think it's because Trump notoriously has just held on to the vision of America in, you know, the 50s. And so it's extremely infuriating. But I do agree with your point in let's ex- let's kind of relook at education. And I think if the government is providing a free high school education to all children in America... Well, let's look at... Let's fix that. Let's fix that system so that those kids can come out of high school not even needing a college degree. Therefore, the government doesn't have to try to subsidize that or provide student loans or whatever because I know that's a huge talking point between liberals and conservatives, whether, you know, college tuition, uh, depending on who you talk to, should be free. caused by the federal government. let's, Let's decrease the demand to even go to college by equipping people who graduate high school with a skills, the skill sets necessary to enter into a great job that can provide them a middle class salary, and if we're in, that can be provided at that level, if you give people the skills and you're proactive, the school system in America hasn't been reformed for decades. And guess what? The world has changed so much from even 20, 30, 40 years ago, even 10 years ago. But why are we still adhering to these archaic systems? It honestly makes no sense. Avery, you're going to make me cry. I'm so happy. This is like, oh, why can't more people, like, okay. So the reason why I'm an economics major is because in politics, some it's, it's like Game of Thrones. You win or you die. Economics is one of the only sort of social sciences 
and social networks in the world that you can possibly study where everyone can win. Bill Gates didn't become a billionaire by taking billions of dollars from other people. Instead, he created millions, probably, at this point, of jobs. Yeah. If you look at the entire history of the PC, Microsoft, everything. Economics is a win-win situation. It is meant where if you exploit your comparative advantage, other countries exploit their comparative advantages. If everyone focuses on what they can bring to the table, everyone is better off. If everyone trades with each other, everyone is better off. And I just think that, and this is, I guess, not to bring this back to partisan lines, but my fear with us letting millennials sort of flip off capitalism and act like, they're better than it and embrace this sort of Bernie Sanders-esque socialism. My fear with that is that you completely, I don't mind if you have to go with like your like Che Guevara wearing shirt phase, but if you're actually missing the idea that us trading with the West, with the rest of the world makes everyone better off, then it's really hard to save it from the sort of Trumpian logic. And more people should be outraged about this, but I don't think enough people are going to be because I don't think that we've, I don't think that we've informed the American populace, how to view these things in economic terms. No, I completely agree. And that's why I think Trump's policy and rhetoric is kind of playing exactly into the hands of the people that are maybe not as equipped to understand these economic issues, which is a lot of people. Because by him kind of creating, I guess, this system or strategy or rhetoric, whatever you want to call it, of, oh, as Americans, we don't need anyone else. We can be great at everything. Well, that doesn't work. That's not efficient. Be good at one thing, be good at a couple things, and expand on that and use that to the fullest advantage possible. Yeah. And then use other countries for what they're good at. Because you're not, if you're going to try to do everything, if you're going to try to be a jack of all trades, you are never going to be extremely proficient in one thing. And I think it's much better to be proficient in one thing or a couple things than be, eh, all right, mediocre in a lot. And that's what all economists think. That's what all intellectual people who can study this and understand it think, yet the leader of America just doesn't see that, and that's a very juvenile position to come from. Hear, hear. I cannot endorse that entire, like, little diatribe enough. <laughs> no, that, I mean, it's, okay, I, I guess, I guess now we just need to, we just need to pivot into something we disagree with. So, I mean, like, so, I mean, we should go into, like, the gun whole control. gun thing, because, like, that was insane. Um, but, but let me just take this moment to go on the record by saying everyone just needs to view this from the fact that economics is a social science, but it's also math. <laughs> there are some things that are objectively true every single time in terms of how these formulas work out. But, um, but I guess, hopefully, I, I doubt that President Trump or uh, any of his immediate aides listen to this podcast, but, you know. And uh, Trump's 71 at this point. Do you think he's even going to listen to anyone else? Who knows? So, well, we don't even I have mean, hope to well, tell I mean, him to listen to us right? anymore. So I know, all I know. hope is lost. I know. But, you know, Trump's 71. And uh, he he's he's churned around a lot on this whole gun issue. God, if, if only he could be so so malleable with, with trade as he is with guns. I, I mean, not going to lie, I'm pretty happy with his pivot on gun control. However, I can understand how conservatives may not be. Okay, so okay, so to back up for a moment, because there's just so much news to back up and recap on. So, uh, in the wake of the Parkland shooting, 17 civilians dead, a lot of debate. Was it the fault of the sheriffs? Was it the fault of the FBI? Because they had received multiple tips 
dozens of tips about the shooter that he had been threatening to do this for a while. They did nothing. Somehow the NRA has come under fire for being responsible for it, and uh, people are calling for new gun control laws, which is not categorically wrong because gun control as a definition is a pretty much an umbrella term for a number of things. But um, Trump has been in talks with Democrats and Republicans alike, and he sort of turned around uh, on Wednesday really embracing who of all people, Diane Feinstein. So, woo! <laughs> Diane Feinstein is the worst, and you should agree with me. She is no, 84 I'm not, years I'm not old. talking about Feinstein. I'm just talking about his embracing okay. of Democratic gun okay. control so, policies. Okay, so here's my issue with this. I'm going to start off with, with, the, with what everyone needs to address when you begin the gun control debate. Is the Second Amendment a God-given right, or is it, or is it a misguided privilege written by the Founding Fathers? So the Second Amendment says that we have the right to bear arms, and... If you read any of the founders' writings, it is really for one reason, and it has been extrapolated to two reasons, the second reason being self-defense, but it is really to protect ourselves from a tyrannical government. If Mike Pence is literally the Handmaid's Tale, he is Gilead, he is the bad guy who wants to enslave all women, and if Donald Trump is Adolf Hitler meets Benito Mussolini meets Voldemort, (laughs) then... Shouldn't we be arming ourselves? Shouldn't we be protecting ourselves? Because that's what the founding father said. So I believe that all there's I have no problem with with talking about gun control on principle. But if we forget the underlying axiom that that this country was founded on the notion that we have a right to defend ourselves and that everything else, every other law that is written is to infringe on that right because of because they're, through due process, courts have found a reasonable, a plausible cause to take that right away from you, then then, then it's not control that we should be, even be considering. Okay, well, let's be real here, though. When the Constitution was written, the world was far less developed. There was a definite, um, I guess... Present, there was a definite, there's, there was definitely less presence in terms of foreign actors and their ability to mobilize and help out countries in times of war and dictators. Yes, yeah, so our, en- so, our only enemy was our government. What, someone was going to come over by like wooden boat in a three month journey, whereas today you can take a flight or you can fly your jet to another country are you advocating and, for more immigration and, 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 restriction? Do, and do and do foreign intervention and so i think it's important to note yes that's why the amendment was initially written like if trump becomes hitler and tries to wage war on his own people we have the right we ha- we are armed to defend ourselves yes but society and government in the united states has become so much far more established than it was when the constitution was written and has progressed so much more that i think a civil war is impossible in this day and age i i will never need a gun to defend myself from a trump army that is going to come to my house and even if i do what good am i going to do to kill you know the one nazi soldier that comes up at my door with my gun when there is an entire army behind them and so i think that is like a far-fetched argument because 
by arming the American people, that doesn't mean you're going to be successful underneath an entire mobilized military base in the hypothetical situation of a government using its military to wage war on its own people. And even in that case, foreign actors and allies of the but U.S. would the come in to actors. intervene. It, it, but, but it's not about... Uh, ignore the foreign actors for a moment and consider... So what's like... Okay, I'm trying to think of... I think that the right wing has their sort of obvious civil liberties that they care about. I think the left wing has theirs. So let's take a left wing civil liberty. Let's say um, the right to live as a homosexual or the right to, or the right to live as, as a transgendered man or woman. Let's say that this sort of dummy mirage of Mike Pence that I think is wildly overblown, but let's say he took over and he was able, and he just said, eh, screw the Constitution, screw our lawmaking process. I'm just going to say if you are gay or whatever, you will be arrested. You don't think a gun would begin to be used? You know, I, I know that. So, I, so what good does that do? So the, the, per, the person, okay. the, the agent that comes to my door to yes. take me, to rip me out of my home because I am gay, I shoot him and then what? That makes the problem go away? No, but, but, but then, okay, this country was formed through violent revolution. We've gone through a second violent revolution and obviously liberty won as it should have. But if we, people always forget that America is an experiment and it's not a very long experiment in the grand scheme of human history. Other republics have not been so successful as ours. France is on, what, their fifth republic? And we are so lucky that in that time span, we are still on our first. However, that will not always be the case. Maybe. God willing, it will be. God willing, we will never, ever, ever need to take up arms. But, I mean, so, and, and the reason why I bring up the idea of the intention of the Second Amendment is because if you look at the overwhelming majority of gun violence is uh, enacted by, is enacted not by rifles, is enacted by handguns. Um, and that's because most gun violence, if you look at accidental gun deaths, suicides, domestic violence, and gang violence, that comprises the majority of gun deaths. And almost none of those involve rifles. Rifles are tend to be stored in homes, often in the middle of America, where you live maybe 10 to 15 minutes away from your closest law enforcement. So if you do have someone who is robbing you, you have a way of defending yourself. Or God forbid, if you're a woman and if you're attacked, you have a way of defending yourself. But I bring this up because, you know, everyone on the left likes to wax on poetic about taking away our AR-15s, um, about, you know, they, they oscillate between using assault weapons, assault rifles. But that's such a minority of all gun deaths in America so is the goal really just to take away handguns too? And that's the thing I'm unclear about because um, when Rubio comes out in the lion's den of that CNN town hall where he says, I'm open to raising the age uh, limit or the age uh, minimum for acquiring, I think he was saying AR-15s. Um, and you still have these Parkland kids on CNN every single night saying, it's not enough. He doesn't really care. He's still directly responsible. He still has blood in his hands. Is there not something a little bit disingenuous about that? So here's the difference. And I think that the conservative side always tries to dilute the gun control argument by bringing up the statistic that, well, 
the most amount of gun violence is actually by handguns, not by these assault rifles. So why are we just why are we trying to limit these assault rifles when actually the bigger issue is handguns? Sure, but here's the difference. A handgun can kill in one single episode from when it is decided to be used lethally far less people than a automatic weapon can. And so in terms of looking at these events and gun deaths as scenarios in themselves and and one-time events, if you look at the one-time event of when a handgun is used lethally versus the one-time event of when an automatic weapon is used lethally, in terms of that one-time event and you're looking at the gun deaths from that one instance and that one scenario the automatic assault weapon is far more destructive. Semi-automatic, semi-automatic. Semi-automatic. This is an important differentiation. A semi-automatic weapon is far more destructive. And so that has the ability of, yes, there may be less events that occur with the use of a semi-automatic weapon, but the destruction of them and the impact is far greater in terms of that one singular moment. And what I would like to say in regards to gun control, and I think it gets construed on the right as, you know, the liberal argument for gun reform and gun control is, oh, well, people on the right, the the liberals want to take away, they want to take away your guns. No, that's not the case. Gun control and gun reform do not mean the prohibition of guns. It means... But, but, but has their party not contr- splintered a bit on this front? Because I, that politician has said, and honestly, like if there is one, tell me. But I do not know one actual credible politician that has said no guns in America. I am pushing for there to be absolutely no ability to access any form of gun in America. That's not the case. If you can meet the requirements, which most like sane, able-bodied people can do, what effect does it really have on you? Unless you're someone who shouldn't be owning a gun in the first place. So okay. Again, my issue is not is not talking about these things from a policy perspective, but what the underlying assumptions are. And I guess, oh, if, okay, so yeah, hypothetically, you could say, all right, if you have a handgun for sixty seconds versus an AR fifteen for sixty seconds, how many more uh, rounds can you fire? Obviously, like you can fire more bullets from an AR fifteen than a handgun, but but a if the issue is that law enforcement knew about this, did not step in before. And then when they were actually at the school, um, the officers didn't step in for, what, four minutes? Then it doesn't really matter the difference between, like, I mean, if we're just talking about lives lost, like, I think any lives lost, that's an issue. That's problematic, the fact that the officers didn't think about the sense that no civilian lives should be lost. Second, it's the fact that when Trump says things, like, We'll do the due process second. That's you don't do the due process second. This is a nation that's built on due process. It's in our Fourth Amendment. But I think it comes the checks and balances that exist in the government to begin with. Obviously, in order to pass a bill, due process needs to be no, made. No, 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 no. Not passing the bill, but in terms of so he was referring to the gun violence restraining order, which is something that we we've, we've discussed previously on the podcast. Um, it's, so it's this idea that that rather than rather than saying no one has the right to have a gun, you have to like go through special loopholes. Assuming that everyone does their sec- every able-bodied adult has a Second Amendment right to having a gun. If, for example, you know that your brother is 
mentally ill, looking up videos of school shooters, glorifying them, cutting himself, whatever. You, you, if you've reason to believe that he is a is that he is a threat to himself or to others, that you can file this gun violence restraining order. And the court either issues a temporary injunction, which immediately revokes his right to having a gun and brings him into the court within 72 hours or some like immediate time frame like that, or it files a trial date in a slightly longer time span. But it's 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 so that way you do not take away his right to have the gun before you enact some form of due process. And the reason why this is clearly necessary is because when the 43 times law enforcement was contacted about the Parkland school shooter, they did nothing. So clearly there needs to be a formal form of recourse in order to take away guns from people who are threats to themselves and or to others. So, and the only reason why I say this is because when you have someone like Trump who, what, two weeks ago was defending either Rob Porter or Steve Wynn, I don't know what what politician it was who was credibly accused of violence against women, but he said, people's lives are being ruined does due process not mean, mean anything anymore? So due process matters when it's a woman making an accusation in the court of public opinion, but it doesn't matter when it's taking away your Second Amendment right. That is what I have grievance with. Yes, well, I think, you know, notoriously throughout Trump's presidency, he has always flip-flopped in his rhetoric on numerous issues and just on on daily conversation points that he makes. Um, although he says that due process, you know, doesn't really matter, uh, I don't think that that'll actually become the case. I think this is a classic example of seeing Trump say something and there's no merit behind it. And so for that, I hope that's the case because although, yes, I want gun control passed and I want there to be gun reform, obviously it's important to follow due process, but I think that would be made because there's too many checks and balances for it not to be made. Uh, anyways, though, it's about time to wrap this up. We've got to get going on with our Friday it's night. It's a long night. And I'm sure everyone else does, too. So we will see you guys next week. As always, you can find us on SoundCloud and on iTunes. Also, pretty exciting news. Tiana and I actually were featured on The Real News Podcast, which is both a podcast and radio show, uh, talking about kind of gun control in the wake of the Parkland shooting and the ethos behind this podcast and why we even started it. So... When that does drop, we will certainly post the links on our social media at Avery Hogarth and at Tiana the First. Um, as always, be sure to like, follow, subscribe, whatever it may be, and we will see you guys next week. Thank you.